0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of the Lamentations of Jeremiah. Lamentations. I want to try to give you a kind of a idea of how this book is constructed. Maybe many of you already know, but uh, we'll have to look back and forth. There's five chapters, but I'd like for for you to look with me at the first chapter and notice that there are 22 verses in the first chapter, and look at the second chapter, and notice that there are 22 verses. Just kind of flip over in your Bible. And look at the third chapter, and you'll notice that there are 66 verses. And look at the fourth chapter, and you'll notice there's 22 verses. Again. And look at the fifth chapter, and you'll see that there's 22 verses. Again. Now this is very important because this lamentations of Jeremiah forms a an acrostic, and that means a necrostic is a poem or series of lines in which certain letters, usually the first letter in each line, form a name or a motto or a message when read in sequence. And then each verse here, when we look at this uh, book of Lamentations, we'll find that it begins with the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Like chapters 1 and 2, there are 22 verses of three lines each. Notice how large these verses are in the first two chapters. Notice that they're long verses, almost equally divided. See them in your Bible? They're just about the same length. And each of these 22 verses... Of three lines each, and each verse begins with the letter, the first letter on, like, uh, through the Hebrew alphabet, like alf and beth, and each verse would begin with that in the Hebrew. We don't see it here in the English language, but it does begin with that in the Hebrew. And that means that it forms a pattern. And then the third chapter has, instead of 22 verses, it has 66 verses. But if you look at the third chapter, I want you to see how short those verses are in the third chapter. So it has, instead of 22, it has 66 verses. That's three times 22. And the first three verses would be like Alf, 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 and Beth, 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 and the next, and in sequence through the Hebrew alphabet. And so the Hebrew alphabet is followed again, only it's followed in a triplet kind of way. Instead of a singular way, like you find in the first two chapters, and by the way, the fourth will take on the same order, it follows that form. This poetic form is also found in the 119th Psalm. You've probably noticed that as you read the 119th Psalm. Turn back to the 119th Psalm just for, to look at it. If you'll notice the way that the 119th Psalm, if you have that, and I'll wait a moment till you get there. If you'll notice the way it is written, it's writ- written in octaves. And the first octave, or eight verses, if you'll notice at the head of those eight verses, it's A-L-E-P-H, alpha. Look at the second one, it's B-E-T-H. That's begin with verses 9 through 16. And it goes right on through the Hebrew alphabet all the way through this uh, this 119th Psalm until you get down to the end of it. If you'll notice the last one, it's T-A-U, that's verses 169 through 176. So it includes all, there are 22 of them, 22 sections of eight verses each, right through the Hebrew alphabet. And that's the way this, poetic form of the book of Lamentations is written. And if you'll turn back to the book of Lamentations, since you've looked at that, I want you to notice something. We've already mentioned that the first two chapters are rather long verses, and the third chapter has uh, more verses than 22. It has 66, but they're very short, and so it's also of interest that the that the third chapter of 66 verses have only one-third as many poetic measures, thus making the same number of measures, within whether it's 22 verses or 66 verses. See what I mean? So that the shorter chapters that have the 22 verses, like the first and second, there's the equal measure in the the, uh, third chapter that has 66 verses. Let me repeat that again. It's of interest that the third chapter, having 66 verses, have only a third as many poetic measures, and thus making the same number of measures, whether you have the 22 verses in chapter 1 and 2, or the 66 verses in chapter 3. And the fourth chapter also follows this same pattern. But if you'll notice the last chapter, just you can flip back and forth in your Bible. This is, to me, it was always interesting. If you'll notice in the last chapter it does not follow any particular arrangement or this arrangement at all. And if you'll notice the verses you can see that they are not not as uh, they're not any smaller, they're not as small as the third chapter that has the 66 verses and they're not as large as the others that have uh, 22 verses because it does not form that same pattern why we don't know. There may be a real hidden meaning in that, but So far, we have not found it out. So I just wanted you to see kind of how this uh, poem is constructed. And now I want to get into some things that we will just give you an overview. I don't know how far we'll get, but I'd like to give you some practical thoughts about the book of Jeremiah. If you look at the first chapter, please, verses 1 through 11, you have the awful desolation of Jerusalem. And within that first 11 verses is what you find. You find the awful desolation of Jerusalem in the first 11 verses. And then verses 12 through 22, you have three things. You have a sad cry, and you have confession, and you have prayer, the prayer of the people. So it's divided into three sections, the the second part of this uh, first chapter. Now, the, the sorrows of Jeremiah when the calamities which he had predicted befell his people, when this happened, he chose to live with them in their sufferings. He did not separate himself from their sufferings. And that's why it's called the lamentations of Jeremiah, even though it's the lamentations of of Israel as well as his lamentations or his weeping. Look at this first section, if you will, the awful desolation of Jerusalem. We'll just read As we go along, and you'll see how the desolation is described here in the first 11 verses. The very first verse says, How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princess among the provinces, how has she become tributary? You know, the once populated city is now uh, a bereaved widow, and the princes have become a slave. So we find that the condition, and it's described as we go along, we have a complete description of what ha- takes place here. Verse 2, she weepeth sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Jeremiah is describing all that Israel went through and Judah during the book of Jeremiah when the, all of this happened. And now this is the weeping over the, such a uh, condition as existed. She weepeth sore in the night, her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she hath none to comfort her, and all her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become, look at this, they are become her enemies. Her friends have become her enemies. Judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of a great servitude. She dwelleth among the heathen, she findeth no rest. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. The the ways of Zion do mourn, because none come to the solemn feast. All her gates are desolate. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are are the chief, her enemies prosper, for the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy, and from the daughter of Zion all her beauty is departed. Her princes are become like hearts that find no pasture. The hearts are the deer that's running through the forest that find no pasture. And they are gone without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old, when her people fell into the hand of the enemy, and none did help her. The adversaries saw her and did mock at her Sabbaths. I want you to look at that, verse 7 again. Jerusalem remembered in the days of her affliction and of her miseries all her pleasant things that she had in the days of old. Did you know it's much harder for people when you've had a great deal and you've enjoyed great uh, blessings? If, you're, if you come to the condition of poverty or affliction or without, than it is a person that's never experienced that. Now, she had experienced all the blessings of God, and now it's reversed. Of course, all this happened in the book of Jeremiah. And it says, And none did help her. The adversary saw her and did mock at her Sabbath, made fun of her religion. And it says in verse 8, Jerusalem hath grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her, because they have seen her nakedness. Yea, she sigheth and turneth back. Her filthiness is in her skirt. She remembereth not her last end. Therefore she came down wonderfully. She hath had no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy hath magnified himself. The adversary hath spread out his hand upon all her pleasant things. For she hath seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom thou didst command, that they should not enter into thy congregation. All her people sighed. They seek bread. They have given their pleasant things for me to relieve the soul. See, O Lord, and consider, for I am become vile. That's an awful desolation, isn't it, of Jerusalem? When you get to this second section, verses 12 through 17, you'll see the sad cry and the confession and the prayer of the people. Look at verse 12. Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Behold, and see if there be any sorrow like unto my sorrow, which is done unto me, wherewith the Lord hath afflicted me in the day of his fierce anger. Now, this speaks of the unique sorrow of Jerusalem. We've heard preachers from time to time take this and and identify it with Christ's sorrow. And he certainly did have sorrow, and there was no sorrow like his sorrow either. But here it basically is speaking of the sorrow of Jerusalem. It may be a picture of Christ's sorrow because he sorrowed not only himself uh, as Jeremiah sorrowed, but he sorrowed with the people and for the people in all of his sorrow. And so you can read uh, this section and you'll find in this section the, the cry of the people. I'm not going to read every verse of it, but I want you to pick up with verse 18 and you'll see the confession of the people. It says, The Lord is righteous, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray, you all the people, and behold, my sorrow, my virgins and my young men are gone into captivity. And you can read this section on down from verses 12 through 17, I mean verses 18, I should say, the confession, verse 18 and 19. He says, I call for my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and my elders gave up the ghost in the city while they sought their meat to relieve their souls. And yet you find that the last of it is a prayer from verses 20 through 22. I want you to notice the prayer. It says, Behold, O Lord. For I am in distress, my bowels are troubled, mine heart is turned within me. He's speaking of his inmost being. For I have grievously rebelled. Here's an admission of sin and rebellion. Abroad the sword bereaveth. At home there is as death. They have heard that I sigh. There is none to comfort me. All mine enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that thou hast done it. Thou wilt bring the day... "...that thou hast called, and they shall be likened to me." Here, I want you to notice, and by the way, you'll have this in every one of these chapters, there is a redeeming feature in each chapter. And if you'll notice this, the Jews admit that the Lord is righteous in sending them into captivity. He said that in verse 18, "...the Lord is righteous." But here, in verse 21, it says, Thou wilt bring the day that thou hast called, and they shall be like unto me. Let all their wickedness come before thee, and do unto them as thou hast done unto me, for all my transgressions, and for my sighs are many, and my heart is faint. So the last two verses show us a redeeming feature in this chapter for all that they had undergone. And it means for God... Uh, here to be justified in their deliverance when he brings this same kind of judgment and same kind of thing that they had suffered upon their enemies. By the way, if you want to look at these chapters, let me just give you the redeeming feature in each one, and then we'll come back and talk some more about it. If you look in the second chapter, the latter part of it, verses 20 through 22 also, the redeeming feature in the second chapter is this that here's a plea for God's compassion and consideration. Now look, verse 20, actually verse 20 will give what we need. It says, Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom thou hast done this. Shall the women eat their fruit, and the children of a span long? Shall the priest and the prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? The young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. My virgin and my young men are fallen by the sword. Thou hast... Slain them in the day of thine anger, thou hast killed and not pitied. Thou hast called in a solemn day my tarot round about, so that in the day of the Lord's anger none escape nor re- remain. Those that I have swaddled and brought up hath mine enemy consumed. So what are they looking at here? Behold, O Lord, verse 20, and consider to whom thou hast done this. And here is a plea to God that in the midst of all this misery that they are gone through, that God would... Behold and consider and be compassionate toward them. That's the redeeming feature in the second chapter. And in the third chapter, you find it rather early. You find it in verse 22. The redeeming feature is the merciful Lord that they seek. Verse 22. Just look through and find chapter 3, verse 22. It says, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Look on down at verse 27. I mean, verse uh, 31. It says, For the Lord will not cast off forever. So here, the redeeming feature in this third chapter has to do with the merciful Lord unto them. Now then, chapter 4. Let's look at another one. Flip over to chapter 4. Notice in chapter 4. The redeeming feature is here in verse 22, and it has to be with this. This is where he foretells the return of the captivity of Zion at last, and verse 22 shows us that. It says, The punishment of thine iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry thee away into captivity. He will visit thine iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover thy sins. So he's pointing to the others that he will visit the iniquity upon, but he will no more carry thee away into captivity. That's the feature that we want to look at in, verse, in chapter 4. Look at chapter 5. There's also one. And it's in verse 21. It says, Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. Renew, renew our days as of old. That's in the fifth chapter, verse 21. This, this fifth this In this fifth chapter, this is the lament that is seen, and it's seen especially in this verse, in this 21st verse, when, he said, when they say, Turn thou us unto thee. You know, a lot of times we tell people to turn uh, to God, but they're praying here, Jeremiah's praying here and saying, Turn thou us unto thee. You do the turning, and we will turn. People are to turn to God, but God has to do the turning sometimes before we turn. There's a verse in the psalm that shows much the same thing. Let me see if I can find it. In Psalm 119. And I turned my feet. That's verse 59. I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy commandments. And there's another one in uh, 133 that says, Order my steps in thy word. Let not any iniquity have dominion over me. But there are many of them in that 119th Psalm. I won't have time to search them out. If you read the whole 119th Psalm, and you'll see that it bears true to this passage in the book of uh, Lamentations 5, verse 21. Turn thou us unto thee, back in Lamentations, and we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old, In verse 22 it says, But thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. Some have said that verse 21 is repeated again after verse 22. So it would be like you would read verse 21, verse 22, and read the same thing again. Turn thou us unto thee. So it would close with a a positive note instead of a negative note. And if you study it out, you'll find that some say that, that's, uh, that that verse also is included again or repeated again. Let's turn back to chapter 1. I think I've given you a redeeming feature in each and every one of them. And uh, chapter 1, you had three things. You had the cry, You had the awful des- desolation of Jerusalem. That was verses 1 through 11. And then there were three divisions in verses 12 through 22. And the first one was a cry, the second one was confession, and the third one was a prayer. Now then, if you look at chapter 2, in chapter 2, the Lord is seen as one who punishes Jerusalem, this whole chapter. And we see the effects of God's wrath in these 13 verses, the first 13 verses, these verses describe what God had done to Judah. Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, How hath the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger, and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel, and remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger? The Lord hath swallowed up all the inhabitants of Jacob, and hath not pitied. He hath thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He hath brought them down to the ground. He hath polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. He hath cut off in his fierce anger. Notice all this is speaking of God's wrath and anger. You see, God is not only a God of love, but God is a God of judgment. And God is a God of wrath. And when He's fed up with our sins, you heard me preach not too long back on when God's patience wears out. God's patience wore out with the, in the Old Testament. In the days of Noah, God's patience wore out. He wore out with the, the angels that sinned. And it came to an end in the days of Lot as he was down in Sodom. His patience wore out with Belshazzar. And he said, this night the kingdom is going to be taken from you and give to the Medes and the Persians. We referred to the fact that in the New Testament even, we saw in the beginning an example of God's patience and long suffering with Ananias and Sapphira. But they came in and they lied to the Holy Spirit and they lied to God. And God struck them both down. And the men carried them out and buried them. Ananias first, and then Sapphira, because she came in with the same lie that her husband had told. And they lied against the Holy Spirit of God. And Peter says, Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And he showed there that that uh, he would not put up with that kind of a, of a attitude or sin toward himself. And the Bible says in that passage of Scripture, then fear came upon the church. Great fear came upon the church. I guess so. If you had that same thing happening today, in this day and age of grace, fear would come upon the church, and we'd take notice that God means business, wouldn't we? But since this is a day and age of grace, God is long-suffering, and He will not bring judgment before it's necessary. The Bible teaches that judgment is His strange work. That means He doesn't enjoy doing it. It's not the best thing for us. It's not the thing that He'd like to do. But I want you to notice in verse 3, he had cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. That means the power. Horn speaks of power. He hath drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he had burned against Jacob like a flaming fire which devoureth round about. His judgment was like a flaming fire. He hath bent his bow like an enemy. He stood with his right hand as an adversary and slew all that were Pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion, he poured out his fury like fire. You know, we used to have more preaching on the judgment of God than you hear today. And God is a God of judgment. The Bible tells that he will judge. He is, you read in Acts chapter 17, I believe it's verse 31, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's ordained. Whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Christ, Acts 17, 31, I believe. Uh, The resurrection of Christ is God's guarantee that he's going to judge the world. You read all of John chapter 5 and 6, and you'll find, especially John chapter 5, and you'll find that God has committed all judgment unto the Son. And that there's going to be a day of judgment. There's going to be a time of judgment for Christians. There's going to be a time of judgment for the wicked dead in Revelation 20 and verse 11. After the millennium, there's going to be the wicked dead that will stand before God, and God is going to judge them according to their works. So he says in the Psalms that he has set his throne in the heavens. He has set his throne for judgment. You know, when I was a little boy and I'd hear a preacher preach about the judgment of God, and I'd hear him preach about hell, not I'd hear them preach about heaven. I would think, well, I sure don't want to go to, to hell. I want to go to heaven. And you know, it might revive some of our thoughts if this day and hour we'd mention more about it. And people would decide that they have to make a choice. And they have the freedom to make that choice. And God's Holy Spirit will convict us so that we'll have that feeling inside of our hearts that we don't want the judgment of God. We want the goodness of God. And we want the blessings of God. So here it says in verse 4, he had poured, last part of it, he had poured out his fury like fire. The Lord was an enemy. He hath swallowed up Israel. He hath swallowed up all her palaces. He hath destroyed his strongholds. He hath increased the daughter in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He hath violently taken away his tabernacle as if it were of a garden. He hath destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord hath caused the solemn feast and the sabbath to be forgotten in Zion. These were things that God had given them for blessings and for service and for worship. What the solemn feast and the sabbath, and He caused them to be forgotten, and had despised the indignation of His anger, the King, and hath despised in the indignation of His anger, the King and the priest. You want to put an equivalent to that? Suppose today the Lord says. I'm sick of you, and I'm sick of the way you worship. And I'm going to cut off your uh, Sunday school and your church attendance, and I'm going to cut off any uh, means of fellowship and blessings and worship and service. That's what he did for them. He destroyed it. He said, I won't have anything more to do with it. Why? Because they had desecrated everything, and they had sinned against God. I mean, I wouldn't want to live if I couldn't come to church, would you? And fellowship with God's people and hear God's word and sing praises and, and realize that God's blessings were resting upon us. I mean, that would be a sad condition to get into. Suppose the Lord closed down all the church houses and all the places of worship. He says, no more of that. I'm fed up with it. That's what he did for Israel. He had violently taken away his tabernacle. Look at it again. As if it were of a garden. He had destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord had caused the solemn feast and the Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion, couldn't even remember, and had despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. The Lord had cast off his altar. He hath abhorred his sanctuary. Look at that. He hath given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast you could go on and on and read the rest of this down to verse 14 but i want you to notice verse 14 we've already talked enough about the effects of god's wrath and that takes you down to verse 13 but look at verse 14 here you have the cause of god's the cause of god's wrath the cause was the false prophets failure to warn the people look in verse 14 Here you'll find that Judah's prophets had seen false and deceptive visions, and they had put them forth as if it were the word of God. So it says in verse 14, thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee. Remember he talked about in the book of Jeremiah how they had seen false visions, and they declared their dreams and their visions, and God said, I didn't give them those dreams, I didn't give them those visions. That they were false prophets. And Jeremiah rebuked them. And he says, what is the chapter of the week? He says, he that hath a uh, dream, let him tell his dream. But he that hath my word, let him declare my word faithfully. Now look at verse 14 in that line. Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. What was the cause of God's wrath? Because they had not been warned as to what their real condition was. It's like you and I telling people, when they sin and do wrong, say, "Well, oh, you know that's okay," or making the excuse that we all are sinners. Sure, we're all sinners, but we we'll all have to pay for it, and we'll all have to be responsible. So don't just use the excuse that we're all sinners to justify yourself. Someone said, well, Jesus took a, the woman that was caught in the act of adultery and said uh, to all the men and all the people, he that is uh, without sin among you cast the first stone. And of course, they all were sinners, weren't they? And they all turned away. But then he said, where are thine accusers? And has any man accused him? And she said, no man, Lord. But what did Jesus say? He says, neither do I condemn thee. But he says, go and sin no more. See, a lot of people forget that last statement Jesus made. He forgave her because they were sinners and she was a sinner. But he also said, go and sin no more. You change your life. You repent. You turn to God. You you make this different now. You've had your opportunity. And when he said, go and sin no more, I I believe that that woman, in, in view of all that was before her, about to be stoned to death, knew that she would pay attention to what he said. Not just the forgiveness, but what his admonition. So let's not justify ourselves just because someone else is more wicked than ourselves. That doesn't mean anything. Just because we have some people that's, that murders and uh, commit all kinds of immoral things, don't justify ourselves in that by any means. Because that's not going to cut it with the Lord. It's not going to mean anything when you start making excuses like, like that to God. He's going to say, I'm not holding you accountable for what that fellow did. I'm holding you accountable for what you do. It's an individual matter. Alright, now then, in verses uh, 15 and 16, you have the ridicule of the onlookers. Verse 15 and 16, we're in the second chapter. It says, all that passed by, all, all that passed by clapped their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem. Isn't it a terrible thing to be expected to be blessed? And See, Jerusalem was God's chosen, uh, it was uh, His main, it was the city of God, the city of holiness. It was His special place. And now, when people wag their head, it not a terrible thing when you and I have been blessed and then people have to look at what we've done and how we live and the end or the desolation that's come or or whatever happens in our lives, and they just shake their head. Well, you know, they say, I, knew, I thought they were a Christian, you know. I, di- I didn't think God would do this to them. Wouldn't that be a sad situation? Saying, uh, look, they, they hiss and wag their head at the daughter of Jerusalem saying, Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty? See this mockery? This ridicule? It says, The joy of the whole earth? They look at you and I. And I say, are you the one that, that's supposed to be so blessed of God when we've suffered such consequences as a result of our sins? When we've done things that has brought God's uh, judgment upon us and chastening hand, we might say. And then people pass by and say, is that the person that, I, that uh, is supposed to be the perfection of beauty or like Jerusalem or the, the joy of the whole earth? Christians are supposed to be the joy of the whole earth. And we are, unless we bring the consequences upon ourselves. And verse 16, all thine enemies. Here's the ridicule continues. All thine enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Certainly this is the day that we looked for, we have uh, looked for, we have found, we have seen it. Now, verse 17 shows us the fulfillment of God's threats. Verse 17. It says, The Lord hath done that which he hath devised. He hath fulfilled his word that he had commanded in the days of old. He hath thrown down and hath not pitied, and he hath caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He hath set up the horn of thine adversaries, or the power, the horn, or horn speaks of power, of thine adversaries. Isn't it a sad situation when God has to threaten and then fulfill that threatening? And that's what he did. He fulfilled that threat that he had made. We're going to have to stop there. Our time is gone. But let me just say before we close on that verse, we'll pick up with verse 18 and try to give you an overview of the next chapter or two uh, in our next lesson. But let's just remember this that our nation is in a situation today wherein we're inviting God's judgment too. And you and I as individuals and as local church, and we ought to get uh, encourage every Christian in all churches that we have any influence over whatsoever, to repent and turn to God and try to live a Christian life because the only thing that's holding back God's judgment right now is the Christian element in the nation. And I really believe that. You've heard, heard other preachers say it, and I believe that they, they're telling the truth when they say that. We cannot go on and expect God to bless us if we do not turn from sin. Yeah. And we've got a whole nation that needs to repent and turn to God. You know, we go back Second Chronicles and we say there's the message of revival. If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and shall seek my face and pray and turn, from, and turn from their wicked ways. It says that. It says, then will I hear from heaven and I will heal their land. And so I believe it's a good message for revival too, don't you? So, We've just kind of given you a little overview of this because once we give you this, and you can read the book of Lamentations yourself and see the sad note and the the lament of Jeremiah over all the conditions that existed during his ministry with Israel and Judah and during the captivity. And you can see what you need to see in that. But when we give this overview of this and just kind of go through it as we have tonight, the remainder of it, Then we're going to depart from this teaching in the Old Testament. In Sunday evening service, we're going to start teaching the book of Revelation. And be sure and be there for the first lesson, or be here for the first lesson, because we want to give you the key to understanding it. And we're not going to go into a lot of fanciful interpretations. We're going to take what the Scripture shows us to be a valid interpretation or a valid reference or a valid sign or symbol of that book in order to come to uh, any uh, understanding of it. So we'll approach it in that way. Well, we thank you for your patience and your kind attention. Let's stand and we'll be dismissed in prayer. Brother Randy, would you dismiss us, please?